He is risen. All right, so it's Easter. Now, typically on, on uh, Easter, what we end up doing is preaching a text that is specifically on the death and the resurrection of Christ. And uh, most years we're going to do that. Uh, this year we're going to do something a little different, though. We're in Mark chapter 2. Um, and it's a text about Christ. And, and we're here uh, because we want to look at who Jesus is, uh, the authority that he has. We want to look at what the resurrection means for everyone who is united to Christ through faith. Uh, and so we're going to put a little little focus on, on that there. Um, now this, this text we're preaching on, Mark 2, it'll be 1 through 12. It's actually the first text that I ever preached in my whole life. It was uh, in seminary the first time. And uh, a guy named Sinclair Ferguson, he writes books, so some of you might have heard of him, was the, uh, the guy, he sits out there, it's this intimidating thing. He's, everyone in the class has these clipboards, including this you know, world-renowned preacher. And uh, so afterwards, they give you this review, and the first thing he told me was, to always wear solid colored shirts. I remember thinking, what? What are you? And here I am this morning, I look down, and I'm only telling you this story because I thought of this morning because I'm not wearing a solid color shirt, but I have the robe on to hide that, right? So uh, I don't know what he would say to that. Maybe I'll, I'll have to ask. So anyway, Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. Let's, uh, let's read that, uh, and then we'll pray. Uh, And the he here at the beginning is Jesus. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could, could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. The grass withers and the flower fades. Let's pray. Father, we, we come in here today with so many thoughts running through these brains that you have given us. Some of us are worried about the future as we watch the election unfold. Some of us have health concerns that create anxiety. Many have relationship hopes and unknowns and stresses that, that weigh on us. And God, we, we come with so much pressing down on us today. Please By your word, would you draw our focus towards you? Would you grant us time now to just be soaked in the truth of the gospel so that we can walk out of here today with a better perspective about our lives and about the world we live in? And Lord, make me to preach today as as one who understands that life is fleeting, but eternal life is forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So about 12 years ago now, 
my in-laws went on a vacation, and they went to uh, the Caribbean, and, and they were driving across this island, and as they were driving, they, they saw on, on the island of Barbados, they saw this car parked ahead, and it was on the side of the road, uh, and they said as they got closer to the car, they, they began to see more details about it. Uh, it. It seems the car had been broken down there, and the, the owner just parked it on the side of the road, and uh, found some alternate means to get wherever they went because the car was just sitting there abandoned. Um, the odd thing about this car, though, is that it, it had no tires. The tires had all been removed from it, which is perfectly normal in Texas. We see this all the time, but it was not normal there. Uh, and, and the car had just been placed up on cinder blocks, and uh, so, you know, where each of the tires had previously been. Uh, and as they got closer to the car, they began to see that the windows had been busted out, uh, that the actual doors had been removed from the car and carried off somewhere. There were no longer seats in the car. The, uh, <clears throat> the hood was up. Most of the engine was removed. The radio had been stolen. Basically, it was stripped down to almost nothing. And, and the most unusual part of the story, as they were telling it to us, is that uh, as they got near to this car and they saw it completely stripped down to, to nothing, um, the one thing that was there was this, this red club device on the steering wheel. Any of you remember what those were? Like, I haven't seen them in years, but it's this device that's designed to prevent anyone from stealing your car. And, well, the steering wheel was still there, so it worked, right? Uh, <clears throat> but it's like the, the, the owner of this car didn't just leave their car there. They thought about the idea, we need to secure it, uh, and they did something to that. Uh, but they greatly misjudged what the actual need was. See, uh, a club on the steering wheel was not what they needed, right? Uh, this is not unlike what we see today, the way we misjudge sometimes in churches and individuals in our personal lives, uh, as far as what is the greatest need of humanity today. So there's, there's some who are professing believers today in this city and cities all across the globe who uh, mean well in their service to others, but in many ways they've misjudged what our ultimate need is, what the human need is. You see, Christians need to feed the hungry. That's a wonderful thing. But if we bring them food and we do not bring the gospel, then we've missed what their greatest need is. If we educate women in third world countries to be more aware of their medical needs and yet never mention their need of Christ, then we've missed their greatest need. See, if we give men skills and, and places to obtain employment, but never the word of God to receive salvation, then again, we've missed their greatest need. In fact, if we meet every physical need in the world but neglect to bring the gospel of Christ, then we've missed the point and, and, you know, not rightly loved people in the way that I think we mean to, we intend to. But let me be, be absolutely clear. I'm not suggesting that any church or individual neglect mercy ministry. Um, this is not one of those don't give them food, just preach the gospel ideas. It is, it is not an either-or situation, but a yes and also situation. We must do both. Uh, and so this morning, as we, we look at this text, I'll let you know there is one single point. If you like outlines, that makes it easy. You can write that down and be done. Um, and then the point is this. The forgiveness of sin is our ultimate need. The forgiveness of sin is our ultimate need. See, our ultimate need is, is not self-esteem. Our ultimate need is not health. It's not uh, a wonderful spouse. It's not a house. It's not wealth of any scent or source or any amount. It's not uh, to have some great talent. It's not even to be loved by another human being. No, our ultimate need is the forgiveness of sin. And so if we're going to talk about sin at all, I, I think it's, it's best that we have some understanding of what sin actually is. I think we all have some generic ideas of it. 
Uh, and we won't look at every aspect of it here, but I do want to give you a basic idea of what sin is and then get back to the text of Mark here. Um, the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, says that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Um, old language can be a little confusing. In this sense, what it's saying is that sin is what we do, it's what we don't do, it's what we believe or feel contrary to God's word. Um, what God's word tells us to do, uh, not to do, or believe or feel. Uh, and so sin is, at the most basic level, is a disobedience to a holy God. Uh, that Greek word that we translate sin, this is kind of common knowledge at this point in history, but uh, it's an archer's word. They go out, they shoot the arrow, and if you miss the mark, you know, you miss that circle in the middle or whatever it is you're aiming at, uh, that would be called sin because you'd miss the mark. And so, biblically speaking, sin is missing the mark of God's holy law. Now, uh, ultimately, all sin is an offense against God. And, and so it's only natural that only God can ultimately forgive sin, right? Um, because he is the one that's ultimately Again, for instance, if, uh, you know, Tim Dura's not here, but if Tim were here and he offends uh, Craig, <clears throat> it'd be, you know, it, it, it would not make sense for me to go to Tim and tell him, you know what, I've, I've forgiven your sin against Craig. You know, so what? I don't care what you do. Like, it's, I didn't sin against you. I sinned against Craig. And so, you know, he needs the forgiveness of Craig for that sin, uh, not me. And it's the same way, you know, when we're talking about with God. Um, you know, to go on with this illustration, you know, Tim's sin against Craig is ultimately against God. Um, God is the most offended party in any given situation. Uh, you remember King David, right? Uh, he also had a roof. We see a roof in this situation, and Bathsheba babes on it, and ultimately uh, he sins against Bathsheba uh, in some horrible ways. He, he sins against Uriah, her husband, sending him forward where he ends up getting killed. He uh, sins in all sorts of ways, but you know, as, as great as his offense is against both Bathsheba and, and, and Uriah, uh, in Psalm 51, when he's writing about this, he, he says to God, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. See, David knows that <clears throat> those actions were, that, that it were made against uh, Bathsheba and Uriah, but, but he also knows that God is the most offended one here. David's sin was ultimately against God. All of our sin is ultimately against God. And, and so we must keep in mind, though, that, that sin's more than just the, you know, attitudes and actions also. I think sometimes, uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk to my mom sometimes, and she's an unbeliever, and she kind of has this idea of, you know, I'm, I'm not Hitler, I'm not, uh, I won't give you all her other examples, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, she, you know, she's basically the worst people that have ever shown up in the news, and she'll list their sins. And since I haven't done that, I must not be a sinner. And, and it makes me sad because it's just not true. Um, but to put this another way, we're not sinful because we sin, but rather we sin be because we're sinful. Um, to understand this properly, we must we must think beyond terms of you know robbery and murder and theft and pornography and drunkenness, and 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 really see that sin is a um, a state that we are in. It's a result of the fall. It's of our very nature. Um, you know, right now, we as a church, we've been blessed with many pregnancies. Um, it's been a wonderful thing to, to, to see and to get to experience this and, uh, and see people. And, you know, in these wombs are growing these, these, these new lives. Um, they're being formed more and more each day. And it's an amazing thing, uh, you know, to hear the heartbeat in these kind of situations of a child. Many of you have experienced that. Uh, and, and yet, even at that moment, you know um, you know, your own children are to come into this world and, and have sinful natures. We don't, we don't have to teach our children how to sin. We do, 
But we don't have to, right? Uh, they just kind of know how to do it. All of us, when we were born, it was the same way. Uh, and, and the reason is, you know, and, and what this means is that according to our Creator, according to the Word of God, it means that uh, they too are deserving of nothing short of, of God's wrath. That's a sobering thought. It's true. It's nothing we're comfortable saying, but it's absolutely true. We can't say we believe the Word and deny that. Um, it's this sinful nature then that leads Paul to, to say without exception in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we all have sin. Um, we're all sinful, and, and, and the result of this sin is that we're all deserving to be under the wrath of God, uh, his curse. And so you see what I'm getting at here is that our, our greatest need as sinful people is to have that sin forgiven. Um, you know, for us to be able to come into a relationship with our maker, that we might be able to bring glory to his name and find purpose in, in existence even, uh, so that we might dwell with him for all of eternity. And I think, you know, how little we, we would think of food and houses and clothes and things that, um, that aren't needs at all in some regard if we, if we really grasp this, you know. It's not to say we don't need those things, but just thinking through our ultimate need. Also, I, I know you're all wise men and women, and, and you know this in a theological statement, right? Most of what I've said probably hadn't surprised many of you. Um, and so the bigger question is, does this affect your life? You know, do you live this day in and, and day out? Does, does the forgiveness of sin and the reality of that in Christ, does it shape your world? Uh, does it comfort you in difficult times? You know, does it? Um, that our one need as, as men and women is the forgiveness of sin, it, it ought to be on the minds of, of unbelievers. We hope that, right? That's one of the things when we, when we go to share the gospel. We hope that that's a reality in their lives and they can think of that. But it also needs to be on the minds of, of those who are redeemed, those who do know Christ. You know, we should find joy in that forgiveness and, and praise God for his mercy in those moments. Um, you know, because it's nothing we deserve. It's something God has graciously given us. And so uh, we've not earned it. We could not earn it, no matter how hard you tried. Uh, and yet, when this is in our thoughts, all other needs, lesser needs, are put in their proper perspective. Uh, I'll tell you a story. My wife, Laura, and I um, haven't played it as much lately, but, you know, we used to play a game called Worst Case Scenario. It sounds wonderful, right? Um, some of you probably play something similar. Uh, you know, and, and one of the examples of this was, was many years ago uh, that we had an experience with WebMD, and this is before we had children, but uh, Laura had this kind of white growth on the back of her throat. She probably loves me sharing this, right? Um, and, and we visited the website, WebMD. Ever been there? And do you ever regret being there? <clears throat> and so we, we got in there, and this is the early, you know, this is many years ago, so maybe it's better today. I haven't been back since. Uh, we filled in all of her symptoms, you know, this and that, and it feels this way and looks this way, and, and up pops this list of results, you know. This is most likely what it is. And number one on that list was throat cancer. Um, you know, keep in mind, this is a Friday evening. Wouldn't be able to get to the doctor until Monday morning, um, sometime on Monday anyway. And, and so that night and the, the following two days, we were absolutely certain that Laura had throat cancer. Absolutely certain of it. And, and so the way this, this worst-case scenario game works, and it's a great game if you haven't played it, it's just, uh, I asked her, so, and we do it both ways, but in this case I'm asking her, I said, so, so what's the worst-case scenario of this? And, and she answered, I could have cancer. 
and say, no, what, what is the worst case scenario here? And she thinks about it, and this time she says, I could have cancer and it, and it kills me. And, and then I ask her again, because that's what you do when you're annoying in these kind of games. What is the worst thing that can happen? And this time she responds, she says, I have cancer and it kills me tomorrow and I come into the presence of Jesus Christ, my Savior. And the truth of that statement drives out fear. I mean, it puts it in perspective because, you know, whether you have throat cancer or not, you are going to die one day. Um, and it really puts it in perspective just how important this issue is. You know, and, and so we found that whenever we face these issues that cause fear, we, we play this this game, and it, and it puts everything back into perspective, into the perspective of God's grace in our life, um, you know, that our sin has been forgiven in Christ. And it, it turns out, you know, I shared this story many years ago, and forgot to tell anyone the end result, Laura did not have throat cancer, it was mono. Um, probably don't like me sharing that either. <laughs> um, but you know, mono sure is exciting when you think it's throat cancer. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> know this though, there is this great peace, even in the midst of chaos, when we recognize as believers that our greatest need has already been met in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I mean, you really understand that because, you know, we're, we're all sinful, we're all deserving of hell, and our greatest need is the forgiveness of sin. And so, um, think about that, but let's, let's get back into this passage and see what we see here uh, in, the, in this text of Scripture where we see Jesus has the authority to do so. Uh, you remember, he's in Capernaum, that's just an area um, and this is most likely staying in the home of, of Peter. And, uh, you know, in the previous chapter, he actually heals Peter's mother-in-law. I don't know how Peter feels about that. Um, but anyway, they're at the house, and the house is so filled up with people. There's just this crowds that come, around, come along because they want to hear Jesus preach. They want to see if he's going to do something cool. And, and everyone's there. And, and meanwhile, this paralytic man uh, and his four friends get wind that Jesus is nearby. And, and they decide, we're going to take you to him. We're going to get you healed. You know, they have all these plans. And, and so they bring him to, to Jesus um, that he might be healed of his paralysis. Children, do you know what paralysis is? Um, it, it means his legs don't work. His legs don't work at all. He can't jump. He can't run. Uh, he can't dance. He can't walk. He can just sit there. So you can imagine uh, the difficulty of, of this man's life in a lot of ways. And his friends can walk, and so they carry him there. Um, and they bring him there. But upon arrival, they find out we can't get to Jesus. We can't get him where he needs to go. And so um, <clears throat> in their desperation, they actually take the paralytic man up to the roof. And their plan is we will lower him down, which is really ingenious thinking. Um, and, and the first time I heard this, I thought, what in the world? Because you look at our houses out there, and, and you know, I brought my culture into the text, and I thought, how? They're like sawing through the roof. This, oh, like Peter's mom must be so mad. Um, and, and so it helps to kind of understand there were actually stairs on the outside of houses. That's why Bathsheba was on her roof um, you know, way back when. But, um, and the way these, these roofs were made is they put these big logs across the roof, and then they'd put smaller sticks one way, and then they'd put thatch, which is fancy word for smaller sticks still. And, and basically, then there's like mud and stuff up there. And, and by the end of it, you basically have like a garden for your roof that you can walk on. Um, and so anyway, they, they get up there and they just begin to tear through this. Uh, you can kind of imagine this, this picture, the people in the house, the crowds looking up. Um, my guess is that they're completely annoyed, like, wait your turn, you jerks. Um, you know, like there's dirt falling down everywhere and... and and, and they're just digging through. And so they do this because they really believe if we can get him to Jesus, he could make him walk. 
I mean, that's what they're believing. And they do. They, they lower him down, um, and their hope is that Jesus is going to heal him from his paralysis. And what does Jesus say? Look at it. Verse 5. Look what he says. You know, so they're waiting for him to be healed. And Jesus, right there, verse 5, it says, Jesus, seeing their faith, says, My son, your sins are forgiven. What? I mean, you and I know how this story kind of goes, but what a shock to everyone else present. You know, the, the paralytic saw this, saw Jesus like a doctor. You know, I go to him and he heals me. And so can you imagine if you go to your doctor and you're like showing him, look, my arm is broken. And, and you know, the doctor just turns to you, Barbara, your sins are forgiven. What? You know, you'd get a new doctor at that point. I hope. Um, or you have really low standards for your doctor. Or really high standards, maybe. Uh, but you see, the paralytic man and the, and the four men, they come to Jesus and, and for healing and, and for this physical need, not to hear some guy proclaim their sins forgiven. Because that's what, you know, Jesus was famous because he could heal people. And, and when he doesn't immediately do this to, the, to this paralytic man, you know, you kind of wonder, has Jesus really misunderstood why they're here? Has he misunderstood this man's need? No. See, Jesus is doing something greater here. So the scribes present were also shocked by his answer for a totally different reason. They'd, they'd heard this man, this Jesus of Nazareth, show up and speak outright blasphemy, right? Because they know that only God can forgive sin. They, they even think in their hearts, right? Verse 7, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's their question. And their point is, you know, you can't. Um, the scribes know the law. They know that the payment for this blasphemy is stoning to death. Uh, and so it's an interesting thing that this early in the Gospel of Mark that they actually bring this up because this is later going to be the actual, the actual thing they bring him before the Sanhedrin for. Um, Jesus in John 10, 29 and 33, where uh, there the, the Jews are going to want to stone him for saying something very similar at that point uh, regards to his deity. He says there, he says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one, again, pointing to his own deity. Uh, that text there continues, and it says, The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself a god. And so thinking, thinking back to our text in Mark now, Christ says, has just declared this, this paralytic sins forgiven, and the scribes are outraged, you know. Uh, I think it's easy for us today to, uh, to look at the scribes and just kind of think, you know, what, are they ignorant or something, you know? Um, um, but at the same time, I, their response is right in a lot of ways, right? If I stood here and told you on, on my authority I forgive your sins, that would be a problem. It should be a problem. You should not be okay with that. You know, would you believe me? Um... And again, it would be blasphemy for to do that on my own authority. Because I don't have the rights to do that. Uh, but he is the Christ. He is God. He has authority to forgive sins. And so Christ, knowing then what's going on in their hearts, these questions they're asking, you remember in verse 9? Um, verse 9, we see this question that Jesus asked them in return. He says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Well, honestly, from a human perspective, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven, right? Uh, that can't be verified immediately, right? Um, and you know that, you know, apart from Christ, there is no way to have the forgiveness of our sins. But 
Um, there's no physical proof that our sins have been forgiven in Christ. You know, we don't suddenly change color. Nobody smells like roses, you know. Oh, they believe the gospel. They smell like roses, you know. It'd be really cool, but that's not the way it works. And so uh, as far as what's easier to say, it's, it's clear that to proclaim your sins are forgiven is easier to say. Healing, on the other hand, would be immediately verifiable. If I, you know, were to heal one of you, you'd know real quick whether I did or not, right? And I can't. Um, you know, if Christ is to proclaim, or is to claim that the paralytic man is, is now healed, uh, he best get up, or else everyone there watching this would actually know that, that it was a lie. And yet Christ does heal the paralytic man, and he does so as, as proof to show that he does have authority to forgive sin. Uh, in verse 11, we see that Jesus, in order to, to show that he has authority on earth to forgive sin, tells the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. See, with this statement, I love this, because with this statement, all who are present are able to answer the question that was asked of Jesus earlier. Remember? Um, who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, Jesus can. Jesus can. And he can because he's God. He can because he's the promised Messiah. And so the greatest need that we have as men and women is for the forgiveness of our sin, and Jesus can do that. Um, but in order for that to happen, a great price had to be paid. Christ had to die on the cross. Um, you know, bearing the, the sins of many, as he speaks in Matthew 20, 28, uh, at the Last Supper or the Last Dinner, depending upon whether you're from the South or not. Um, you know, there we read the, the words of Jesus as he says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. See, Christ paid the debt to redeem God's covenant people from their sin. Um, it's as the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, he bore our sins on the cross. He carried our sins on the cross. And the and cross and the proof that God the Father accepted the payment is what we celebrate today, that Christ is resurrected from the dead, back to life. It's a simple, profound thing that our greatest need as men, women, and children is the forgiveness of sin. And it's either our greatest need fulfilled or our greatest need still unmet. Uh, without the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting will not be a glorious reality. It will be one of the most fearful moments anyone could imagine. Um, without the forgiveness of sin, we have no part in the, the story of redemption of, of which Christ is the central figure. So our lives must, must never lose sight that, that our ultimate need is the forgiveness of sin. Uh, that really helps us to put things in perspective, you know. Uh, even in this situation, you think Jesus could have addressed anything he wanted in this moment. Um, and and what, he noted, what he does here is you know, verse 5, we see he's addressing sin. And he says, my son, your sins are forgiven. Um, while I was in, in seminary, I'll tell you a quick story. While I was in seminary, I worked as a, a youth pastor um, at a Bible church in, in Dallas. There's about a million Bible churches in Dallas. Uh, and one Sunday with the youth, I was teaching about, about sin. And, and I was greatly encouraged. The students were engaging and really interested. And, you know, that, you know, when you speak about sin, it gives you opportunity to speak about the gospel. And... Uh, so I went home really encouraged, and, and then the next week I got called into the senior pastor's office, and I was told, you know, no longer speak about sin. Um, don't do it. And, and he went on to, to tell me, you know, youth already know that they have sin. 
they're going through this awkward stage of life with you know puberty and pimples and feelings for the opposite gender and he just had this stereotypical idea of youth to begin with but um, and I was told that you know really what they need really what they need is uh, is self-esteem really what they need is to just feel loved um, I'm all for for people having self-esteem I'm, I'm all for people knowing that they are loved uh, but that's a far cry from what their true need is right you know self-esteem is not the same as understanding God's grace uh, and, and so I mention this because it's you know it's very practical what we're talking about here you know knowing that our sin is forgiven in Christ is a comfort in difficult times that will come not that might come in your life that will come you know when the doctor diagnoses you or a loved one with actual cancer or a heart condition, or, or something, you know. Um, the truth of your forgiveness in Christ will sustain you. When relationships are, are difficult, when that fog of depression seems like it'll never lift off of you, you know, when, when you can think about, or all you can think about is maybe debt, or how to get out of some problem you've gotten yourself into, you know, that um, really understanding that eternally your sins are forgiven and you are accepted in the kingdom of God. I mean... That's a powerful thing to know. Uh, you know, namely that our greatest need, the forgiveness of sin, is met in Christ alone in our faith, when our faith is in Jesus. So um, let's bring this down kind of to a close here. The, the paralytic man, right? Uh, Christ made him to walk on that day. And the thing sometimes we forget about is that some, some years later, this man couldn't walk again. He, he was unable to walk. Only this time the disease wasn't paralysis. This time... It was a permanent disease of death. However, Christ met not only his, his need for physical healing in Capernaum, but his need for the forgiveness of sin. And as a result, on, on the day that that paralytic man died, it was not a day of mourning, but a day of, of rejoicing because he was with, the, with his Savior forever. You know, just as, as the owner of the car in, in Barbados, as we started with, uh, just as he saw, wrongly saw his or her need for this club to be on the steering wheel, and, um, you know, today... Many wrongly perceive what our absolute need is. What the owner needed really for his broken down car was not a club that proved to be very insufficient. Rather, what he or she really needed was a, a tow truck to move the car out of there, to remove it from the roadside. Um, so it is with, with sinful man. You know, we have one ultimate need, which is the forgiveness of sin. And so we need a savior. And there is but, but one savior. And he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and in the death of the Savior, and um, the resurrection of that Savior, we, we celebrate today on Easter. Uh, and as we do so, and we know that we too will die. That is one of the creepiest thoughts in the world. How many of you like, will sit around and think about that sometimes? All right, you're morbid. That's creepy, right? But you do. I know you do. Because we all do at times. And it creeps us out. But, but here's where the gospel comes in and just brings joy. You know, because Jesus has been resurrected, we who have been forgiven by grace through faith in Jesus, uh, we can look forward to that day when, when our bodies will be resurrected like his body was resurrected for all of eternity. I mean, that's the Christian hope, right? When we use the word hope, it's a sure thing in the future, not, not an unknown thing like we tend to use it culturally. Uh, so finally, I, I just want to close with these, these words. I, I think they're very relevant. They're from uh, one of my favorite authors, a guy named J.C. Ryle. He was called the last of the Puritans, but he's been dead a long time uh, with the Lord. Uh, but he says this, 
May we never rest till the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we have sat at the feet of Jesus and heard his voice saying, Son, your sins are forgiven. Christian, you will never hear anything better. You will never hear any words more freeing. You will never hear any truth more restful in this life than our Savior, Jesus, saying, Your sins are forgiven. So believe on the Lord Jesus and rest. Let's pray. Lord, there is nothing more important than the resurrection and how that secures for your children forgiveness of sin and eternal life in your kingdom. God, I ask for one simple request this morning for everyone in this room. Faith. I ask that if we not have faith, that you would grant us hearts and mind to believe what you have revealed in the text of Scripture, to believe the gospel. God, I ask if we do have faith in Christ as our Savior, I ask that you would make it stronger, that you'd make it more sure in our understanding, more stable. God, may we go from here today knowing that our one true need is met in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.